Hello and welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon. With me are my co-host Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. Today's episode is a little bit of a different one. Today we will be discussing the current political climate in America as the coronavirus changes life as we know it. But we're going to start by introducing our new co-host Vaughn. Like Toby and I, Vaughn is a UK resident, but unlike us, Vaughn is actually American. Vaughn do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your academic studies and your interests and that kind of thing? Hey, yeah, sure. Um, so, like you said, I'm American. Um, I'm from Philadelphia, but I've lived in London for the last almost three years, and I lived in Dublin before that. Um, I'm currently studying for a PhD in uh, modern American history, specifically film history. Um, and for my project, I'm looking at uh, Christmas films from the early Cold War period, from 1946 to 1961, um, to kind of discuss the ways in which Hollywood uh, created a kind of cultural response to a lot of crises going on in America in the post-war period. So I'm looking at things around like patriotism and family and gender, um, anti-communism in Hollywood, and uh, throughout the nation and times of nostalgia in these films um, to kind of flesh out what the overarching cultural response uh, to the post-war period was. And in that, I'm also looking at the pressures outside of Hollywood, like uh, the House Committee for Un-American Activities and um, other kind of political pressures on Hollywood to construct a certain archetypal American uh, image in their films. Has there been anything that's kind of surprised you as you've kind of dug into this work? Anything that's kind of maybe changed your view either on Hollywood or in America or the time period you're studying? Um, yeah, I've definitely found a lot more tangible evidence than I was expecting of the government um, or individual politicians kind of reaching into Hollywood and swaying opinions one way or another. Um, the FBI published a 13,000 page report called Communist Infiltration into the Motion Picture Industry. Um, and it really detailed through how alleged communists were injecting their communist ideologies into very non-political films um, and that was that was really surprising to see that there's such a paper trail of this from the government uh, into Hollywood. Do you think viewing America from outside like you have done from the last few years do you think that's a changed your views maybe on modern day America but also on the the studies and the, the topics you're looking at right now? It absolutely has. Um, so coming into contact with scholars who weren't raised in the American education system has really shown me how 
history is such a subjective kind mm-hmm. of area in in the states it even varies between states what you're learning like particularly with the civil war it's taught differently in the north from the south mm-hmm. um and very differently from the west and that especially with my patriotism chapter and research that has really kind of rocked my world of the ingrained and almost inherent patriotic ideas that I have about the U.S. and particularly about our history um, from the perspective of, of a more global community where they don't necessarily learn here that we say the Pledge of Allegiance every day as children for 12 years. Mm-hmm. That one really kind of blew my mind when when I just said that offhanded to someone and they were like, no, we don't do that here. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, it's definitely tilted my perspective a bit. Um, And it's always a learning curve to see what is this kind of ingrained patriotic response to certain material and what needs uh, re-examining because of that. Do you think the kind of idea of a sort of being American then has sort of changed in your your viewpoint by living outside of America? Certainly my perspective, I think America has been very proud of its own history and very kind of proud of its nationalism and very much wanted to take on this idea of, you know, America equals good and what America does is kind of, you know, pushing forward the the correct narrative, as it were. Do you think stepping outside of that, I don't know if you've become less patriotic, but do you think your patriotism has, has evolved or changed? I think, I think there are kind of two responses to this that I have. So first, uh, I think that you just touched on it, that Americans equate patriotism with nationalism, Mm -hmm. in my perspective at least. Um, We don't have a very defined line between the two, and you either aggressively love your country or you do not. Um, But that's also something that is specific to America, which is kind of the second response of the myth of American exceptionalism, that the rules don't really apply to Americans because Americans um, by tradition have this quality about them. Um, Carl Russell, Russell Fish wrote about this in the 20s, looking back at the 1800s, um, and the quality of Americanness in the common man. Uh, and he says that that any any American person inherently has this willpower and drive to become great, regardless of how he started uh, in life. And regardless of the lot that he was given, he has potential to be the president of the United States. And he has potential to rise in the ranks um that kind of rags to riches story and studying that from outside of the country has really shown me how much of a myth it really is Mm -hmm. uh, because we really give ourselves a lot of credit there (laughs) Um, (laughs) i think i think it's it's true of any person that if you want it badly enough you you can work to better your station in life 
but that doesn't necessarily mean in an economic sense or in a political sense or anything like that. Um, and yeah, just studying the myth of American exceptionalism has been a real eye-opener uh, for this idea of American patriotism. Um, there's, there's another historian, Merrill Curti, who wrote in 1946 about American patriotism. Um, and he said it's an American's duty to question authority and question the government and make sure that the government that represents him also represents his values and his identity. And the most American trait is to challenge your government to do best. Um, he was the uh, librarian of Congress for in mid 20th century. Um, and he's a very beloved historian among American history historians or American history scholars. Um, and I think that really that comes from this myth of American exceptionalism mm -hmm. in that every American can question the government, mm -hmm. but I think it hits differently as it being your duty, not necessarily your inherent qualities that make you great, but it is your duty to live up to the expectation that you are great. And it's your duty to make sure that your government is living up to that duty. So this is a very long-winded answer to say that my patriotism has definitely kind of shaken um, in the last few years of researching these things. But I think I am, I have an, a newfound respect for it mm -hmm. uh, by looking at those historians that are talking about these very salient issues that are still prevalent today. Uh, just kind of last couple of questions for myself. And one would be, there is sometimes a perception that over in the UK and maybe parts of Europe, we're a bit more cynical and have a slightly more cynical edge on just our demeanor and how we kind of look at the world, whereas Americans are a bit, perhaps a bit more positive and a bit more, you know, we can achieve this, we can get this done. Maybe uh, the Brits maybe being an older nation and perhaps just have a bit of extra cynicism about that. <laughs> have you experienced any of that? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think one of my uh, friends said this best, that one of my friends over here looking out at the States from here, um, he said that Americans see everything in superlative. They're either having the best day of their lives or they're having the absolute worst. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really true, that when we are positive, we are aggressively positive and <laughs> our optimism will not fail. Um, but when we're not, we kind of fall into a really bad rut um, mm -hmm. that really calls for that extra positive outlook. So I think maybe the UK and other European countries have a better kind of balance between those two. <laughs> uh, and maybe the cynicism is a little called for, but yeah, Americans will will just be very aggressive about their optimism when it's called for. I guess there's an element of that's how your ancestors got, got the will to get on that boat and travel all those thousands of miles to reach a new land, whereas maybe us cynical leftovers were 
<laughs> remained <laughs> remained in our uh, in our country and decided not to uh, take that brand new adventure. Um, so I suppose for me, the big final question is just how much do you love Richard Nixon? Um, I feel I've been instructed to say I love him very much. <laughs> that is the correct answer. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I've been instructed. I mean, unless you're talking about like by a higher power, such as Just, the it, of Richard no, Nixon. absolutely. It was like by divine uh, invocation, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. That, that's how Toby and I found the light as well. Um, <laughs> it was a very spiritual adventure for us as well. Uh, Right, well, that that was great. Thank you for answering those questions. I hope you, hope you didn't feel too much great. on the spot there. I think it's, I think it's great. Yeah. yeah. And well, don't worry, we'll, we'll teach you all the, the, the words to our Nixon Pledge of Allegiance later. Uh, <laughs> you know, what I do find quite interesting from what Vaughan has been saying is that Americans or, you know, it's like people who sort of buy into the American myth have really, a, a, you know, an idea of a way of being or an idea of, like, what, um, parts of our culture should we venerate and how how do we best um, live out this this American ideal while in England there just isn't that you know there isn't a framework for being an, an English person in that way and there isn't really that much to live up to you know no I mean once, once you've done all the terrible things that we've done as a nation there isn't really much left to uh We'll have to kick around at this point. And, you know, America still, I guess, has this superpower element to it, whereas Britain has kind of gone through the fading of, um, you know, we took over the world and then we kind of sheepishly handed it back to the world after World War II. So I I, I don't know how much there's a a natural perspective of Americans being different purely because, you know, there's a ancestral change of people getting on a boat and living their lives differently as a result and they are still such a relatively fresh nation in regards to how old britain is i i don't know much smart much smarter people than me will be able to give you much more detailed answers but i think it was really interesting what you said vaughn about how we or how americans perhaps view their lives and view their role within the world compared to (laughs) how us cynical brits do um so if probably worth moving on to well i'd say von joining impressions of america is probably the biggest news story of 2020 probably the mm-hmm. second biggest news story is the coronavirus um there's just been i don't really know how to describe it i mean it is living through history i mean there have been certain events when you kind of grow up and you you live through where you look back and you go yeah that is like genuinely history i, I kind of playing out but this feels different because it's so ongoing i mean only really, really thing i can kind of compare it to was the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and then you know what was the world going to be like and you know what countries were going to get invaded and you know were we going to have you know atomic war and chemical warfare and all this kind of stuff but this feels a bit different because it's so personal it's so don't speak to your neighbor kind of thing um so as we're recording this you know it's still probably only just starting in America. Um, we obviously know the issues that China and Italy have had, and it's really bad over here in Britain as well, and probably only going to get worse. Um, there are a lot of political stories moving around, either related or semi-related to the coronavirus in America right now. I don't know where we want to start, but for me, probably this, 
starting points. Either we look at the GOP side of it and all the sheer batshit craziness going on there, or we look at the Democratic side because this should be a an election year. This should be the stuff we're really interested in, and this should be, um, you know, Biden apparently sort of somehow warming his way to victory. Do we want to start on the Democratic side, or do we I, want... I think we should start on the Democratic side. We we go from the election to the coronavirus. Okay, well let, let's do that then. So. Much to the um, surprise of some people, although maybe not surprised to others, it would appear Biden is in the the driving seat as far as this election is concerned. Um, it's kind of clear that you know we should be looking at an election right now, but we're we're kind of looking back on Super Tuesday, etc., happening almost what seems like years ago rather than weeks ago. Uh, Vaughn, where would you, how would you summarize where we were prior to the coronavirus as far as where Biden and Bernie were leading up to Super Tuesday and then after Super Tuesday? Um, well, leading up to Super Tuesday, um, it seems like Bernie really had a handle on things. Um, he was coming out just ahead of the pack. Um, and then Super Tuesday, Things definitely got shaken. Biden, uh, um, Biden came out ahead uh, with what was it like a third or more um, mm -hmm. delegates than Bernie, and then he had all of those endorsements come through from all of the candidates dropping out. Um, and once Corona hit, I don't know about you guys, but it seemed like none of that really mattered anymore to, to me. Um, yeah. It just kind of blew up in the face. It was, it's, it's hard to even think back that far at this point because so much has happened recently. Um, and also so little, I, I don't know what Biden's doing at the moment, but I know <laughs> Bernie's been on the phone. Um, yeah. It's, it's a curious one, isn't it? I mean, it does, it seems an age ago that, I was watching the Democratic thing kind of fall apart, essentially, for Bernie with regards to everyone who was centre of him, essentially, decided to go for Biden, uh, endorse Biden. He was able to pull together, essentially, the sort of Democratic um, centre point and the establishment. And it, it kind of familiar theme of our aim is to defeat Bernie as much as it is to win the election. It is kind of right. hard to fully get your head around. But then, you know, you only have to look at something like in the UK where, you know, where we had our, our left-leaning uh, Labour leader who was defeated soundly in the, uh, in the election. And maybe there's a sense within the Democratic uh, ranks that's, something similar will happen to uh, Bernie on a on a national level. You know, maybe his ideas are too crazy for the electorate, or maybe it's that his ideas are simply too crazy for the Democratic Party and they simply don't see him as a Democrat, which I suppose to some degree he's not because his ideas are far more person, you know, regular person-based rather than democratic person-based. It's not so right. much about following the democratic line on certain things as it is essentially talking about revolution to some degree. Um, it's, I guess, a natural part of the kind of... They are defining what the democratic party is and who they want to win. 
And you only have to look at 2016 uh, when, you know, Clinton was essentially in the same position that uh, Biden um, is in now. It's an interesting one to see the parallels. I suppose the difference between Biden and Clinton, for me, there's two distinct parallels. One, I think, as a actual candidate to become, you know, a responsible and uh, useful president, I think Clinton was a better candidate in that regard than Biden is. Because I I do genuinely fear that in four years' time, Biden, like, he's not going to be mentally able to run for re-election. Like, that's not a joke. I genuinely don't think he will be. Whereas I think Biden, and this maybe speaks more about how we view men in politics and how we view women in politics, maybe rather than the actual candidates, I think Biden is a less wounded politician than Clinton was going into 2016. Because I think Clinton had so much baggage that the electorate, they just didn't want Clinton, as much as maybe they didn't want women running for president. You know, there's basically been sort of 30, the last 30 years has been we have to stop Hillary Clinton because she is literally the devil. And I think that definitely played into how you could have someone like um, Trump winning the presidency. Part of the Trump victory was because he was a quote-unquote anecdote to regular politicians. But I think part of it as well is because Clinton was a damaged politician. And I think Biden has less of that, despite his flaws, and there are many of them. Um, So I would... I, I, I coming back to this election right now, it does feel very similar. B- Biden is where the middle ground is going for the Democratic Party, and we saw, you know, we only have to see, like, people like Buttigieg who were who you know a few couple months ago were saying that people like Biden shouldn't be running for president because you know we need a, a younger voice and you know we need people who aren't stuck in the mud and who are going to do X, Y, and Z. And now it's you know Biden's going to be the best president there ever could be and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's, you know, it is what is it? It is what it is. It's politics. You know, that's kind of what we expect. It's a bit um, ridiculous, though. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so, Toby, are we close to seeing Biden being crowned king at this point? Or do we think there's a leg still in the in the race? I, I think the states that have already gone are the states that Bernie's strongest in. So right. the, the Super Tuesday states and then... States like Michigan, which he actually managed to beat Hillary Clinton in last time, were won quite heavily by Biden because Biden's um, coalition is composed of a different group of Democrats than Hillary was. Mm-hmm. So I think the Democratic electorate has managed to, in part, respond to Hillary's loss to Trump by, in many ways, trying to pull out older white male candidates uh, in terms of Bernie and in terms of Biden, both without a sort of woke overtone. Mm. And Biden in Michigan really is the testing case for why this has been, why this is particularly different from the Hillary Clinton, because in Michigan in 2016, what Bernie was able to do is was able to win white working class voters. And that put him over the top in Michigan, even though Michigan has this historically has a quite strong black contingent. But what ha- has happened in 2020 is that Biden was able to win those voters back from Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And even though many of those voters are, you know, pro a lot of Bernie's policies, things like 
Medicare for all, even things like um, free college for you know, people who are going to two-year community colleges, even though they're, they're, they're quite you know, pro those, those uh, policies, they seem to feel that Biden is much more electable. And, you know, even those, I think, head, and head to heads, and it's been throughout this election season, Biden and Bernie have been the strongest against Trump. And during the, the sort of high arc where Bernie was doing much better, Bernie's head to heads with Trump were slightly better, and they, they still are slightly better. But the Democratic electorate, when you poll the Democratic electorate, for like 70, 20, people think that Biden's much more electable than Bernie Sanders. And I think it's the electability question within the Democratic electorate that's really hurt Bernie. And it's seen, especially after Super, Super Tuesday, which was, I mean, this, the, a lot of the Super Tuesday states were Bernie states. Yeah, states like not just California, but Massachusetts, um, Minnesota, he was supposed to win those states. And because Biden won those states, and, and especially when you think about the compositions of states to come, you know, states like uh, New York and uh, states coming or have just coming um, like Florida, there is no way back for Bernie. The probability of Bernie winning the primary is now, I think, at 2%. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's an impossible task. But I think Bernie is staying in partly because of the uncertainty of coronavirus and also partly because, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's really important that he asserts the movement's um, power at the convention or in the manifesto that Biden's going to run. Yeah, with Biden winning uh, Florida a few days ago, I think he won Illinois and Arizona as well. It, it does seem as if we are... Well, I think in a normal election, I think we'd be looking towards Biden essentially clinching victory fairly soon. But as you say, with the coronavirus and the sort of world altering events that's happening right now, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was Biden has been less vocal in the last couple of weeks as far as just or last week or so, just as far as being a political voice. It does seem as if Bernie has been far more um able to get his voice across to the people and talk about things and obviously his more socialist message does kind of tie in with this need for government to essentially assist the the lives of the american people which is you know something that you know is kind of his campaign is built around whereas you know some like biden is is less so do we think you know without being able to predict the future do we think Bernie's going to stay in the race as long as possible because of these events? I mean, it is really odd. I think Biden, he has a history of gaffes. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, people talk about his victorious uh, debate against Paul Ryan in 2012. But actually, when you look at that debate, he made a lot of gaffes. He, he would constantly, you know, miss numbers or mm-hmm. miss... Um, what the actual legislation was was actually, and um, in his, you know, presidential races uh, when he ran in the 1980s, he famously lifted a Stephen Kinnock speech. So he is like very prone to gaffes, and I would say that he's probably running an incumbent race. So his comms people and the strategists probably want him to not have as much exposure during this coronavirus scare 
and I think that's probably the strategy that they're they're playing forward. So that's probably why he's not, you know, being seen as as as, as much as possible. I think what is interesting is that many people feel that he is coordinating the policy response with uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. And uh, the policy response by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer has been, I think, received quite lukewarmly because they've really looked to offer things like uh, tax credits and uh, payroll dispensation to, to people who are in quite precarious positions which is actually you know, less progressive or less um, bold than some of the policies that the Republicans have been putting forward. So Biden is associated with, with their, I think, failings in terms of uh, dealing with the coronavirus, and he's not, not anywhere to be seen. So yeah, he, he's, he's coming off quite poorly in this uh, current crisis. I, I think this is really like an unprecedented kind of time in an election cycle, because we we need leadership in the states right now. We're not getting it from the GOP side and the ones legitimately in power. Um, and it's kind of, we have like, we have three presidential candidates at the moment, all able to take the limelight and show their leadership abilities in a kind of test run of how they would actually be president with one of them being the president. And I think Bernie's the only one that's really stepping up to the plate and showing, like, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. He's been using his dem- uh, his um, donors to prop up some um, charities that are working for coronavirus relief for workers and um, for people who are disproportionately really suffering from this this crisis um and i think that whether it's a kind of pr ploy or not for biden it does not look good for him that at a time when the nation genuinely needs him or a time that it could genuinely need him he has the opportunity to step up and he's not so moving on to the other side of the political aisle right now um it's kind of hard to know where to start, Vaughn, with this one. Um, <laughs> we we are aware that um, in January and February, Trump was apparently briefed on the seriousness of the, the pandemic that was going to be coming. And rather than do much about it, we get kind of initial responses from Trump that things are not that serious, the numbers are very small, it's kind of going to go away by itself, this might be a democratic hoax, and we see some of that play out in Fox News even as recently as about 10 days ago or a week or so ago. Could have been stopped, could have been stopped pretty easily if we had known, if everybody had known about it. And this is their new hoax. But you know, we did something that's been pretty amazing. We're 15 people in this massive country, and because of the fact that we went early, we went early, we could have had a lot more than that. At worst, worst case scenario, it could be the flu. I feel like the more I learn about this, the less there is to worry about. I was about to say the same thing. Nearly 200 dead, 14,000 who are sick, millions, as you witnessed, who are scared right now. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. I think it's a very nasty question, and I think it's a very bad signal that you're putting out to the American people. The American people are looking for answers and they're looking for hope. 
and you're doing sensationalism, and uh, the same with NBC and Comcast. I don't call it, I don't call it Comcast, I call it Comcast. Let me just ask for whom you work. Let me just tell you something. That's really bad reporting. And you ought to get back to reporting instead of sensationalism. Let's see if it works. It might and it might not. I happen to feel good about it, but who knows? I've been right a lot. Let's see what happens, John. How would you summarize where we are with Trump and the uh, the coronavirus and uh, leading into the, the election? There are a lot of words that could describe this. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think it's just generally a, an unsurprising disappointment. It, yep. I think that like like I was saying, this could have been an opportunity for him to really, really ensure his his reelection in the fall, and he just dropped the ball completely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, but I think the thing that matters more than that is that he doesn't really care. No, he he still thinks in his mind that he is doing an he's doing a great job. Yep, tremendous job here. Um. And that's the news, that's the, that's the soundbite that we hear, you know, praising about how good a job he's done. And for me, the, the worry is not only does he believe it, but there'll be 35% of Americans who will just automatically believe that as well, or whatever the percentage Absolutely. is. And, and to me, sorry, on you go. I was going to say, to me, that's just as terrifying, if not more so. Yeah, no, I, I wholly agree. Um, I, I was reading about all of this because I can't look away. Um, <laughs> and there, there was something that said that the worst thing that could possibly happen for the states right now is for the right to continue on their path of saying everything's fine, we have this under control, blaming China, using xenophobic la- language, but then also offering the social packages that the left are campaigning for at the moment mm-hmm. by giving these like stimulus packages and trying to fix the economy before it completely falls asunder so that coming out of this virus uh, whenever that happens there's this perception that the right actually did a good job because we're constantly hearing that they are doing a good job mm-hmm. and they did also do the absolute bare minimum for the social needs of people to come out relatively unscathed at the end of it. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's my biggest fear at the moment. You should never really let a good crisis go to waste in politics. <laughs> and, exactly. um, yeah, and, and the geo... Well, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. And, and, and as you guys have touched on, like, Trump, I mean, he's basically, you know, given face to the many fears that liberals have had about him in government you know he did not set up enough test kits uh, in in the period um, between february and march so that we would be ready for this thing but some of his blustering and some of the i think the rhetoric from some members of the gop people like mitt romney that you know they're actually going to give people one thousand pounds this freedom dividend that andrew yang keeps talking about is meant that Trump's approval rating on the actual coronavirus scare is at 58%, which is pretty, I think, scary for the post-corona period, especially with Joe Biden being seen to be doing nothing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so just to kind of catch everyone who might not be up to speed on, on some of this, so 
kind of the historical nature of this, I kind of maybe one of the starting points is that apparently Trump or someone within the White House um, fired the pandemic response team uh, that were previously briefed by the Obama administration, I think back in 2018. So kind of even before we get into the actual details of this particular virus, the Trump administration is kind of starting on the back foot. Um, from there, as we know, Trump was apparently uh, briefed back in uh, early as January around this, um, uh, around the, the serious nature of, of what was happening in Asia and what was going to be coming uh, this way. And I think even the first cases in America might may have started around about that time as well. Um, so that was sort of January, February. And then since then, the last few weeks have just been just absolutely batshit crazy. It, it is <laughs> astonishing to try and get your head around each of these things. For me, almost the way Trump deals with this, and it has been true kind of maybe even before he was elected, even some of the news stories prior to his actual winning of the election, was in the old days, there used to be something bad would happen to a politician and that would be the news story for six weeks and then he would either, you know, down his sword or, you know, something would change. With Trump, his approach was make millions of bad things happen all at once so the news is always changing the story so we can never figure out what the hell's going on. Right. And that that's happened constantly throughout his presidency whereas this is the story that's going to bring down Trump. And then like six hours later, he'd, you know, like nuke the moon or something and then we'd we'd all be like, oh, the moon's now disappeared. Let's talk about that for three hours. And it, it it it's it's like that all over again this time with the coronavirus. So to kind of sum up some of the things, you know, he's he's apparently tried to get a German company to like uh, don't spend any of your resources in America, in Germany and you know don't don't uh, help them in any way. Just come to come to come to America and give us all the uh, all the um, vaccines that uh, will be coming uh, out of your lab. You know make that exclusively for america that then followed on we've got things like uh trump going crazier at a reporter when he was asked a really softball question i don't know if you've heard this one von and toby where it was just like things are really bad right now people are scared what would you say to the american people and then he just goes crazy at the reporter going say you're a really bad reporter and that's a really nasty question and you're scaring people i mean that that is just i honestly don't know how a president is supposed to respond any worse than that and then, you know, even outside of Trump, you've got things like uh, reports of senators, including uh, Richard Burr and Kelly Loeffler, dumping stocks after being briefed, you know, and then making away with millions as a result. And it, it, it's just... And Diane um, Feinstein, to be fair, you know. I got yeah, that's true. And <laughs> that, that's true. We'll, we'll, we'll not exclude all the, the, uh, the people involved in that, but... Uh, it that does seem to be that um, Feinstein, as you say, is part of that uh, part of that swamp which um, Trump is going to drain eventually. And then even right now, you know, we've we've got Trump versus I think Dr. Fossey, which is Trump going on about these unproven drugs that are going to be the miracle cure for things. And then Fossey just going, well, I'd rather not send something out as the cure if we don't know it. And it, it's just I I'm struggling to keep up. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, it's it is really odd that he, that Trump talked about the malaria um, drug as being a cure for this, because it it had been it was being tested in a number of different countries, but that the the, um, the health officials in the UK said that it, it wasn't what people could use for for a cure, and mm -hmm. uh, while the health officials in some other European countries said that it might be, but they, they hadn't really 
been distributing it. There was a sense in which it, that Trump was overshooting his market, he was taking what was essentially just the experiments or trials that were happening in, in, in different places and then, you know, saying that actually the, this is, you know, what you guys are going to need. And, you know, that might actually have a real bad effect on people because it's been um, said that the malaria drug can lead to um, sort of respiratory issues and can lead to like heart attacks and instant deaths in in, in some people. So yeah, this is a, the, his um, his government isn't functioning the way a government should. And, and obviously, we knew that this would it was going to happen. But yeah, yeah, it's it's a real shame that this is happening under um, Donald Trump. Yeah. Oh, like they- I- like I said, a very unsurprising disappointment. And that that last thing you said, Toby, um, from from a U.S. citizen here, um, taking medical advice is very different in the states than it is here, because we constantly have commercials and ads for mm-hmm. different types of drugs um, that you should go and ask your doctor about, and people trust what they see on TV more than they trust their doctors in the States because there's this perception that doctors are just um, prescribing things that will get them the biggest payout from pharmaceutical companies. And sure, that's another conversation to be had, but it's really dangerous that Trump is telling people about this drug that is very harmful Mm. if not taken when necessary. Um, So I think that that's been a huge kind of concern of mine as well um, around this, this fake news that he is talking about and just grasping at straws to sound like he knows what he's talking about. Do you think, I mean, there is an alternative universe where Trump hasn't completely messed this up and he's now sort of sailing towards an inevitable victory just by being sort of reasonably competent you know there's this idea that you don't pull out pull out the war before the election kind of thing you know the the captain of the ship needs to stay on until he's kind of set things straight i mean there is a there is definitely a a scenario where even a wild card president has sort of been able to politically maneuver himself into a position where he's seen as important in getting america through this this is just not the case with trump it is very much gone the other way has has this sort of crisis, this world pandemic, has this changed how you think the election will play out? For for me going into it, I thought Trump would actually beat Biden. I just don't trust Biden as a candidate. But I would say there's maybe a bit more of a chance for Trump losing now as, as a result of what's going on with this Trump presidency through the coronavirus. I think that this is a really difficult time to make projections like that Mm -hmm. because every day I mean for the last three years of his presidency every day you wake up and you look at the damage report and Mm -hmm. see what has happened now like did he actually nuke the moon (laughs) Um, and it's even more intense now because Mm -hmm. this coronavirus is just spreading so rapidly Mm -hmm. and it's affecting every single aspect of people's lives that the vast majority of voters didn't necessarily have to think about. Mm -hmm. We have 
people with chronic illnesses that now have to or that that are begging for their lives essentially for people to stay home and not spread the virus even further because of immunocompromised people who were already vocal enough with anti-vax vaccination vaccination um people before but now it's something that more americans are waking up to like oh this does have a very immediate effect for some of our citizens and then you have low-wage workers who Mm -hmm. a month ago were called unskilled and replaceable and now they are the backbone of our country and they need to be protected at all costs so you have this kind of like complete and total upheaval of the expectations of the government and what they should have already had in place so that we didn't get to a point where the Federal Reserve has to pump a trillion dollars a day for two weeks into the system. And I I really don't know how this election is going to go. I don't know how the rest of the primary is going to go. I think that this election might finally be the, like, a huge call for a third party in our system because the Democrats now are covering or trying to cover so many classes of citizens in the states that their their party lines just don't make sense anymore. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that could be a fallout of this election or Trump could just win again or Biden could win. And I really don't know which way it's going to go at the moment because I don't even know what tomorrow looks like. Just to touch on what Vaughn initially said about the stories that no one was really listening to about Trump or the Trump presidency. Like it takes something like the Ukraine story, you know, using you, you Ukrainians to you know get dirt on biden and the biden family and then you know the sort of the 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 senate hearings that happened about about that it's it was all just theater but the real numbers in the trump presidency are trump's economic growth rate is around three percent the dow jones is as high as it has ever been you know so any democrat was going to run against trump who had a strong economy a strong unemployment rate a strong unemployment rate against uh um, you know, strong unemployment rate for African Americans, strong unemployment rate for Latinos. For Latinos. So, but all of this stuff that has come to define the Trump presidency, in in terms of the you know, big ticket stuff, not 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 the the more you know theatrical stories around him, all of that has been eroded by the coronavirus. Right. The, the unemployment rate is shooting up. The Dow Jones is taking you know unprecedented falls. The Treasury is going to have to come up with an incredibly low interest rate so that people can have access to funds. And then the, the, the U.S. government is going to have to actually pay empl- um, uh, employees wages. You know, so uh, we're in an almost uh, wartime scenario where Trump can't really come to the electorate with his record. So what he does right now is essential for whether he becomes uh, re-elected. And it does feel a bit crass talking about a future election, considering there are people literally dying of a of a virus, of a, of a threat, which is only going to get worse and which is impacting lives around the world in a way which I guess feels sort of... 
it doesn't feel like it belongs in modern times if you know what I mean it's exactly. the kind of thing you would read about and you go well I'm really happy that modern medicine has advanced to such a state that we're not going to be in that situation and instead as you say you know we're we have essentially flipped society on its head where the vulnerable are even more vulnerable than they were and it's the people who are you know on the front line of you know grocery stores or offering medical assistance or th those you know transport workers etc those are kind of the the backbone the heroes the the low skilled jobs quote unquote which is keeping not just america but you know most of the world afloat right now and you know as the as we shift towards a more socialist approach to sort of getting through this crisis we also have the amazon Amazonification of the world happening right now as well, where everybody, you know, we may have jumped forward 10 or 15 years as far as that. You know, we there are shops closing now and we don't know whether or not they are actually going to reopen after we get through this. You know, we, perhaps we have moved forward as a result of this to a point where more people are now going to be working in Amazon and that local shop has just lost five years of its, of its existence. It's a really, not just unprecedented change but a terrifying change for so many people and it does feel terrible to be talking about these things it reminds me a little bit about when uh, certain celebrities uh, would say things like well Clinton was just as bad as Trump so I'm not going to vote for Clinton which is a really easy thing to say when you're a white successful actor who's living in a million dollar mansion but actually you know the, the Trump um actions against you know minorities or against transgender people or against people who are in vulnerable areas trump getting into the presidency really mattered for the actual survival of these people and it kind of feels you know it's perhaps an even more extreme version now where any person in the country could be badly affected because trump is so impossibly ignorant and terrible at his job and it does feel kind of there's a natural element of us wanting to replace Trump in order to get through this, but at the same time, we kind of just have to focus on trying to actually get the world through the immediate crisis of trying not to lose too many millions of lives. It's just terrifying. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, and you sort of pointed on the Amazonification of our economy and, and, and people's lives. I mean, I, you know, just me personally i was talking to a business owner and she said that she couldn't pay staff and i said oh new staff and she said no i can't i can't pay current staff and this was before mm -hmm. the the total shutdown there's a sense in which like a lot of individual you know small business owners don't have the running capital to carry on their businesses and will they have the ability once the coronavirus dissipates to set up those businesses again or will it be a sort of a generalized move to i think broader the broader momentum towards an amazonification of the economy even things like social distancing and and um using zoom instead of being in an office mm -hmm. there there is a general like atomization that had that we had been seeing in the culture you know generally that is being intensified by this crisis and and will we say you know if the crisis goes on for say three months or something will we ever get back to the world before it or will will there be sort of much more of a focus on you know um sort of atomized work or you know the amazonification of the economy i mean we don't know i mean it it 
yeah, yeah, it's 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 such an interesting uh, time because it, it it you know what does the crisis say about us and and is the crisis actually part of a general trend in how we were um, going forward previously? I think what what's interesting as well, you know, people who you know all three of us to one degree or another have studied history and looked at history and I guess what we think of as quote-unquote an interesting time period to study (laughs) it's very different when you're actually living through that and so there is an interesting part of oh um cinemas for instance basically closed down as a result and of the coronavirus and never re-recovered and the shift on media became actually getting this onto Netflix or onto a special pay-per-view where they could get their money back, you know, and we we basically stopped having a cinematic experience. That could be quite an interesting news story in, in itself if you were looking back at this in 50 years' time. If you weren't, if you basically just put to one side the panic and the death and the destruction that's happening to society right now. And so just even as a a tool to kind of look back on, as a guide to look back on, I think this is a really interesting point for myself, probably as a learning experience looking back on history and going, yeah, it's there are some really interesting topics about how things are evolving in society as a result of something like the the virus but at the same time it's it's very we shouldn't forget about what the actual trauma that's being caused right now yeah and i also think that if we go back to trump and the other presidential candidates like it is really important that who is in charge in these times of crisis i mean mm-hmm. you just go back to katrina and the, and the failure of the of yep. the bush administration or the fact that crises have been or have always been used to you know push forward uh, different political ideologies it, the crisis of inflation in the, the 1970s and the rise of the new right for example or the, or, mm-hmm. the, or the great depression and the rise of the new deal democrats i mean it's essential and, it, and whether it's, you know, whether it's Neville Chamberlain or whether it's Churchill at the helm, you know, of uh, mm-hmm. the country when these kinds of things happen is essential for whether a nation survives or what the future is going to look like. So, I, I, you know, like we, we kind of said that this is a little bit like, you know, we're focusing on a sort of small story of the presidential election while, you know, the, the essential story is that, you know, the, um, 80% of people might be able to get this virus and 3.4% of them are going to die, which is, you know, I mean, it's, it's much more important than, than, than politics, you know, in, in this sort of um, horse race. Mm-hmm. Actually, who's on the, who's at the helm, you know, who's working on policy, you know, whether it's Bernie Sanders thinking about $2 trillion in the economy or 2002 individual people or an sort of emergency crisis agency that he'll create or whether it's you know the proposals put, put forward by Mitt Romney which also seem to be you know quite interesting and and quite experimental you know who's at the helm at a crisis is is, is very very important and also how how that uh, White House or whoever's in charge just what actions or what story they decide to move forward with, what narrative that, you know, an example is after 9-11, it would appear as if the GOP used that as a chance to basically go back into Iraq and take the oil. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's that's an example of A happened and then B, C, D and E 
all happened as a result of it because those were man-made decisions which aren't necessarily a natural fallout of that. There will be an element of Trump being a disaster while the crisis is happening, but there will also be a a natural fallout and narrative that he and his presidency will try and tell and maybe shift America towards, I don't know if it's more bailouts for you know, American airlines and that kind of stuff, rather than necessarily trying to increase the safety net for American society so that people aren't, you know, dying of starvation in the most powerful nation on earth. You know, it, it the takeaway of what America does next, it, it's kind of hard to jump to that point right now because we're living through the crisis of it, but it is worth keeping in mind about what stories will be told in the media kind of after the events, just like the stories that were told after 9-11. Yeah, Iraq, whether it's uh, 9-11 and then it's uh, the attack um, of Iraq. I mean, Mm -hmm. you have to think that the neoconservatives had had an idea that they were going to remake Mm -hmm. the the Middle East. And, you know, they, they thought that Iraq, Afghanistan and Iran and, you know, those plans sit in, you know, dusty offices not mm-hmm. being able to see the light of day but once a crisis hits that's the opportunity then you have a, a, a american people who are you know in the majority pro uh, a conflict in 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 the middle east you have um senators who would you know normally be anti-war people like john kerry actually you know voting for the, these measures and supporting them so i mean yeah there's it, it there's it's there's a lot of opportunity i mean you just have to think about the way trump is talking about the chinese i mean people in the press conferences are saying well it's not a chinese virus or it's not the chinese coronavirus and trump is saying it, it comes from china and it does it, it does come from china whether it's outside out of a you know as the chinese have said coming out of a, a lab or whether it's because of poor you know um health practices when it comes to wildlife like bats for example mm-hmm. and then what does that do to the relationship between america and china if you know you have trump at the helm that might exacerbate things and you know that's something that could lead to the american public becoming much less um favorable to the chinese or chinese exports and things like that i mean yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's just so much opportunity for, for bad things to happen because of this. Um, so is there anything, uh, Vaughn or Toby, that more specifically on any of the stories or uh, anything on the uh, sort of political side in America right now? Or do you want to call that a day? Um, if, I, if I may just circle back a bit mm-hmm. um, quickly. I think what you said about our response... Um, to this crisis, what the U.S. does next is extremely powerful um, in the media. And like we started this episode talking about my research about Hollywood's response to a number of cultural crises going on after the war, and how did the how did Hollywood kind of recreate this American identity and mm-hmm what it means to be an American in this time of crisis back in the 1950s. Um, and I think just while you, while you were talking about that, it just really opens up this new perspective for, for me in that research 
of I'm actually living through one of those periods. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 50 years, somebody will be studying this cultural response in this exact moment. And what what was done and what did the media say? What narrative was put forth? So I think this, these are all really valid, really really necessary and salient questions that we should all be very aware of in the next couple months that propaganda and media response is going to be biased and we need to be ready for that especially leading up to this election yeah absolutely i think for for myself just having lived through the kind of iraq war side of things um just as a you know complete bystander who was not involved in any way but watching the news unfold and then you remember how it was sort of presented to the world and then a few years later you kind of got commentary from people who were able to kind of pick through that and able to go actually you know these 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 weren't the right messages these weren't the right actions to be taken and you know if, if anything you know history is about kind of learning from the past so that you don't make these same mistakes again and you know we time and time and time again don't learn from the past and I think it will be interesting to see whether or not we we I say we the media are able to take forward the right narratives and not let um you know a corrupt presidency or uh, a narrative from people who don't have the best intentions you know make sure it's not those people that are really writing the story and if they are trying to do that make sure the media is not just reporting on them and they have to do a better job than what what they've done with trump so far which is trump will say something crazy and then they'll go trump says this rather than uh trump lies about this or ignores it completely and actually tells the truth and i really hope that we get better reporting out of the coronavirus than some of the reporting we've had so far from the uh from the media absolutely yeah and I think we can probably finish today's episode by discussing how great Richard Nixon would be if he were president right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. yeah. Nixon would, would definitely, um, he would work with the, 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 the House very closely. He would be able to make the deals, all the deals. Um, he, he would be, I think, ideologically flexible. So in terms of things like the Bernie Sanders bills, the, the, the two trillion, the setting up agencies, yeah. Someone like that would, would <laughs> make great use of uh, this, this crisis. It's interesting, actually. I don't really think that, um, that wait, no, actually, well, with, with Vietnam, yeah, he did have a, a crisis that, I guess because he, he saw Vietnam and then he was was impeached so he wasn't able to hold on to the successes of getting past the vietnam issue because I, mean, I was just thinking like did he have that sort of major crack but he did i guess but he came into the presidency i think with nixon as well he actually <laughs> look at by comparison he would actually it's... be a, a sane media voice right now compared to trump like oh wow that that actually is like if you think about that like yeah. the american people would actually be better off with nixon speaking to the camera right now than they would with trump i mean i think that that's true for a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> i mean your man was impeached and we're still listening to him here so i don't know 
Yeah. Yeah. There is an argument to be made that most people could speak to the camera right now and reassure the American people better than Trump. Uh, right. I think that's probably us as far as our allotted time is concerned. Um, thank you guys so much for, for joining me today. It's been a lot of fun. And well, I say a lot of fun, as much fun as you can have while talking about a pandemic virus, which is ravaging the earth. Um, and I'm not just talking about Trump. I am talking about the coronavirus as well. From Vaughn, Toby and myself, thank you very much for listening. Um, there will be another episode out in the near future. But for now, uh, take care, stay indoors, and uh, see you later. Goodbye. Bye.